Now, The Sipping Point with Lori Forster, the wine coach, certified sommelier, corporate entertainer, and wife to a world-class chef, Lori is literally pouring the fun back into wine. Meet some of the most interesting people in the world of food, wine, and spirits as she uncorks the recipe for a delicious life. Welcome to The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach. This week, we're talking to Manuel Lozada from the legendary Spanish wine estate, Numantia. It's in the Toro region of Spain. Chris? Yeah. Many people have not heard of Toro. I know Toro is Spanish for bull, right? It is, this, but this is uh, in the northwest part of Spain. Okay. They are legendary for making red wines from the Tinta de Toro grape. Okay. We're going to taste... Right now, one of his award-winning wines. And then I'm going to get Manuel on the line to tell us what's so unique about the region and the wines he's making. He's getting scores from Robert Parker, who was on last weekend Uh in the 90s, the Wine Spectator, all over the place. So we'll find out all about this wine. But I thought we'd start by tasting it. And then later, we're going to answer some of listeners' questions about wine. All right. And tell them how they can wine with us. Love all the right. knowledge. So in your glass, yes. Numantia, Bodega Numantia is the estate. Okay. And Manuel's the estate director. He's going to be coming on the line in a little bit. They make three levels of wine. The Termes, which we're having right now, the 2011, is their first level. Okay. Might call it the starter level. All right. In the 20-ish Okay. Range, $20 range. Affordable, very affordable. Yep. All three of these wines are really made um, similarly in the same region with the same grape, but they're aged different amounts of time in oak. So okay. the one we're tasting now from 2011, the Termes, 16 months in French oak Bordeaux-style barrels. And if you give it a swirl and a smell, you get a lot of dark fruit. So think blackberries, uh, also maybe even some... Sour cherries, kind of in there. Okay, but that sixteen months in oak. Yeah, yeah. That you get that spice, you get the toastiness, and real firm tannin on the palate. Uh, I know you have a little. Yeah, Smell, cold. Smelling anything right now is kind of a chore for me. I'm finding well, let one me of those you, uh, summertime colds. But um, uh, taking a good whiff of this kind of kind of clears the nasal passages a little bit. Well, it does have a little bit of that eucalyptus or sort of mintiness, mm. which. Would be great for yeah. that Vicks. That's what my grandmother used yeah, to say. Right on the, right summer on the colds are the worst. I, I've, they, I've never gotten a summer cold. I'm 32 years old. I've never uh, gotten a cold in the summer before. Uh, knock on wood. You should never say that. That's well, that's I, why we're here. Well, no. I, but yes, it's already happened. Smelling so. is 80% of tasting wine. So when you cut off that ability, you right. really are not experiencing this wine. So you're getting the sour cherry, the dark blackberry, even some really ripe strawberry or red fruit there. Okay. Along with that spice, maybe... Some people might say pepper or nutmeg. A lot of the spiciness can come from that oak aging. Cinnamon yeah. is a lot thing sometimes people okay. get as All well. Right. And 16 months in only one-year-old French barrels, there's quite an investment for the winery to do that because each one of those barrels is, you know, $1,500, $1,800. Wow. And if they're only using it one year old, so that's really two times they're using yeah. the barrel, and then it's moving along. And what do they do after they, they finish? Do they sell it to somebody else to uh, to put their wine in? A lot of people will sell them to w- other wineries who okay. maybe can't afford to buy the brand new oak okay. barrels. And then after they are truly used, you've probably seen people will buy them for planters. Right. They make furniture out of them. Oh, yeah. There's so many 
different things you can do with them. All right. But this really is a beautiful wine. Uh, not many people are familiar with the Toro region, but they're changing that Numantia totally. And the grape, um, the Tinta de Toro, really has this concentrated fruit, these firm tannins that make it a great pairing. I was saying right before we came on air with a with a grilled steak, oh, man. even a burger. You yes. know, sometimes you could take a great wine like this with a, a burger you grill up on, you know, your gas grill in the back. Or actually, charcoal Chef Forrester grill. does the charcoal. Of course, thing. you got to do charcoal. We have both. We have the gas, gas grill Get and the here. charcoal. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But Manuel is going to come on the line. Tell us a little bit. He's the estate director. More about this. Um, the inky color. It's very characteristic from this grape and these wines. I mean, this is, you can't get more opaque than what you're seeing in this glass for sure. And, you know, Mm. I I can't smell or taste very much, but I definitely do get the tannins uh, on my tongue after taking a sip of this wine. Yeah, it's delicious. 2011, fresh and vibrant. Uh, We're going to see the wines get a little different as we move into the second and third tier of his wines. And when we talk with Manuel, we'll be right back to talk to uh, Mr. Lozada from uh, Bodega Numantia. He's going to tell us all about the wines. Later, we're going to answer your wine questions on The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach with The Sipping Point. I'm so excited to have Manuel Lozada on the line. He is the estate director for Bodega Numantia. And we were just tasting his Teramez wine, Chris and I. But we thought it'd be excellent to have him on the line to tell us the real deal about these wines from Toro. Amazing wines. And after 10 years in Argentina, Manuel had the opportunity to make a high-quality sparkling wines with Bodega Chandon and did that for a while and then eventually was able to come to Bodega Numantia in the heart of the Toro region and make these wines that people might not be aware of yet. People that are in the know, wine collectors, already know about these wines. But maybe you haven't heard of them. They are favorites of a lot of the esteemed wine critics around the world, uh, garnering amazing points. And we're just so excited to have Manuel having you on the line. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the line and to talk about this lovely small region of Spain. So be more than happy to give you some ideas about the Toro region and Spanish wines and the Termes Numancia and Termancia, our three wines. I love it. I know I want to talk about all the wines, but I think people get so excited uh, to learn about new regions, new wines, and you'll probably be thrilled to find out that I made a New Year's resolution that I am making good on this year, and it was to drink more Spanish wine. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good way. I like it. I'm happy with that. Uh, yes, I have to be realistic in what I really can accomplish. But I know there's so many great wines and little regions outside of the big ones that we already know about, Rioja mm-hmm. and uh, Ribeiro del Duero and things like that, that people don't always get exposed to. And I think the value of the wines coming um, from all these different regions is so great. So I'm excited for our listeners to find out more about Toro. Now, you have such an esteemed background working at wineries all over the world. Uh, what is it that you love and find so special about the Toro region in, in northwestern Spain, if people are trying to orient. What is it that you find so special? You know, for me, it was a great discovery. I'm Portuguese originally, so I basically grew up on the other side of the border, okay? Mm-hmm. And I would never imagine uh, that uh, not that far from where I grew up, around 60 miles 
east of where I grew up, um, there was this incredible treasure. You know, for me, what's exciting about Spain is that he has that combination, as you were saying, between the traditional regions like Rioja, like Ribera del Duero, but at the same time, have those small jewels spread all over the country, like um, Bierzo, like Jumilla, mm. like Campos de Borja, like, of course, the Toro region, that have these unique treasures, I was saying, which are mostly linked to pre-Philoxia vineyards, okay, to vineyards that have, um, you know, regions that have uh, suffered a little bit of the attack of the Philoxia, but that bug, that terrible bug that devastated the vineyards all over Europe, it didn't progress, and therefore you have ancient vineyards that produce unique treasures. That's what made me fall in love, seriously, when I went there for the first time and see those bush vines, those small vines Mm. that struggle every year that have struggled for almost, uh, and in some cases, over a century, and are still producing very limited, limited quantities of grapes, but with incredible fruit expression. I love that. So the, the grape that you're using there in the Toro region, the Tinta de Toro, tell us a little bit, because people might not be familiar with this grape, tell us a little bit more about just the varietal itself. So the first thing that I would like to tell you is that Tinta de Toro means ink from Toro. Imagine mm. why. It's because of the dark color. It does, it's actually it's the same family as Tempranillo, so the grape that you have in Rioja or the grape that you have in Ribera del Duero, that was brought to the Toro region probably three, four, five centuries ago. And because of the natural conditions, we're talking about a very, a very dry climate, continental climate, because of those conditions, uh, there was an adaptation of the Tempranillo to the Toro region and became a unique expression. So basically you have smaller Mm. grapes, you have thicker skin, you have darker color on the skins because of the over 300 days of sunshine that we have a year. Uh, So basically that also delivers a much more uh, complex aroma and a bigger texture than the the Tempranillo that we used to. Mm. So tell me a little bit about you. In your um, winemaking, you have three different levels, three different types of wine that you're making. Tell me a little bit about, you know, we we were just trying the Termes, um, which is more of, you know, focusing on the fresh and the fruit aspects of the wine. Uh, And then you move on up uh, to more oak aging and and more complex and robust expression. So give us an idea of the line of wines that you have and and how you see each of them expressing. So, so first of all, since you touch a little bit about my experience, everywhere that I've been through uh, or been to, like in, I lived in Argentina, I've been working with the teams in California, with the teams in, in Australia and New Zealand as well, basically the only thing that I've been truthful to, and I studied at quite a young age in the wine business, so I started tasting wine at the age of five, just to give you an idea. Oh, my um, goodness. Uh, five years old? my grandfather's fault. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay, I love it. So, so anyway, I've always, always my philosophy was to be truthful to uh, the origin where the wine were coming from. So in the case of Toro, the first thing that you, that I try to translate on the three wines is that they have to show that they come from this, you know, very old vines under extreme conditions and naturally they have a, a character that's always present. But then afterwards, you know, taking into account a little bit of the, of the expression that I want to give to Termes, for example, which is basically, you know, it's difficult to sum up, but usually what I try to do, what I, what I think of when I'm making termes, is when I'm walking through the vineyard, especially when I'm deciding, I'm following up the ripeness process, I'm defining when to harvest, is t- 
tasting that liveliness, that vibrancy, that freshness of the fruit that you taste in the vineyard, mm-hmm. that's what I want to capture and that's what I want to translate into the wine. Then uh, in the case of Numancia, it's a little bit different. I, I look at Numancia, imagine like a, a, a bull, okay, with beautiful round lines outside, <laughs> but with a lot of muscle inside, okay, even with the, some elements of tension. Okay, so okay. that's what I try to do with Numancia, the grapes are come from vineyards that are 60 to 100 years old. Now imagine 60 to 100 years old, mm-hmm. the vines have a very limited yield, a lot of concentration, and then afterwards you're able to explore a little bit more, as you were saying, with a longer aging, 100% new oak, and that gives new nuances. Right. And then the last one, actually, it's uh, Termancia comes from a single vineyard that is called Peso Los Carriles, and this beautiful vineyard actually was planted between 1870 and 1890. Okay. Okay. So the first time that I went to this vineyard, you could sense, you could have a, you know, I, I usually think that there are a few places in the planet where all the stars are aligned to make one of the best wines. Well, this is one of those places. You can sense that incredible energy when you visit the vineyard. Um, then if you taste the grapes, like an explosion of fruit, enormous character, enormous concentration. Mm. And then afterwards, what I have to do is to use the most delicate winemaking techniques. So we still use the hand sorting, so the hand destemming. We have 35 lovely ladies that do the hand destemming. Wow. We have two gentlemen, which is Johnny Julio Alberto, that do the feet stamping like it was done in the past. And then afterwards, the wine goes through aging in a way that expresses all that, uh, you know, all those elements, all that concentration, all that character, but with a beautiful elegance. And uh, mm. I think that's one of the reasons why the Termancia 2004 was one of the first five wines from Spain that had a 100 points by Robert Parker. Whoa. And that's why, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were very happy. Let's put this, right? And wow. That's, that's it, gives, it gives the wine the potential and the possibility of aging that you cannot imagine. We're actually, uh, Mr. Parker's going to be a guest on the show uh, later in the month, so I'll, I'll have to ask him about the uh, Termanthia and, uh, and find out a little bit more about uh, this perfect, perfect wine, right? <laughs> yes, it is. You know, uh, I even remember, I think it was something like, and I please, I ask you to apologize if it's not a, perf- a perfect quote. <laughs> um, he said that if you have to sold your devil, uh, if you have to sell your soul to the devil, you better do it for a few bottles of this liquid. Oh. He said something like that. It was unbelievable. Wow, that is unbelievable. Okay, and so just to orient people in the line of three, and I love this because you're making three wines um, very similar if you, on the surface, but very different in the way that you are are making them. So we'll take a quick break and come back and let people know about the different price points and a little bit more about what people can expect from Toro and what kind of food pairings are going to be best with it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Manuel Lozada. My mouth will work soon. The wine is so amazing. We'll be right back. This is Lori Forrester, the wine coach. We're back with the sipping point. And we've been talking to Manuel Lozada from Numancia in the Toro region of Spain. And it may be a region you've never heard of, but you need to start doing some research because these are amazing wines and Numantia being one of the premier estates in this region, garnering amazing, uh, sometimes perfect ratings from some of the world's best wine critics. We have the estate director, Manuel, on the line. Thanks for staying with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Too my much pleasure. to talk about in one segment. So we talked a little bit about your uh, your three different levels of, of wines that you're making. Um, the Termes being in the $20 range, um, retail, the Numantia, you know, late 
high 40s, $50. And then the Terramanthia, Terramanthia, uh, which is around 150 as far as I can see it. And maybe you can find uh, some better deals. But tell me a little bit about, since you're working off the same region, the same grapes, how do you differentiate and for a consumer the three wines and and what you're doing to them that changes sort of the level of wine that it is and and what they can expect so so first of all as we're talking a little bit a little bit earlier this is the amazing thing about Spain is that combination between traditional, more traditional wines and more new wine, new world wines, we could, we could call it that way, where actually what you have is a, a perfect balance between the amount of fruit or the, the expression of the terroir and the impression of the winemaker, which is basically what we try to do is translate that into the wines. Now, when you're tasting Teramis, you know, we're talking about what we call the young vines. So they are 30 to 50 years old. Which, you know, if you compare to the rest of the world, is a little bit different because in the rest of the world, by the age of 30, 35, you're pulling off the vineyards. Mm. Well, at that point, we're achieving the first level of, of quality. But, you know, at the age of 30 to 50, we call that the, we think that the vines are still young, are still, uh, you know. Oh, I hope. Um, I'm thinking of myself. I'm still young and I'm in that range. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so am I. So I, I know exactly what, what we mean. And, and so, you know, that's what we try, all the vigor, all that uh, vibrancy, and, and that's translated into the wine as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my opinion. That's what, uh, what Termes has to look like, has to express that, that liveliness, uh, vibrancy, freshness of the fruit that we taste there. So it's very fruity, and it, it's a wine that, um, that basically, because of that character, and because I want to keep that character, it has only around 30% of, of new oak and 70% of, of uh, second-use oak so that it keeps that freshness. Okay. Uh, Numancia, you know, the older the vines get, basically they, they are like we are. So the older they get, the least we want, they want to work, okay? <laughs> and the more effective they, they want the work to be. So basically mm. the yields reduce for around 30%, and you have much more concentration, much more character. That's okay. why, you know, I was talking a little bit earlier about that character of the, of the, of the bull, okay, the, the round lines outside, but a lot of muscle, and even a little bit of tension that's actually uh, given by the, by the tannic structure that, that you naturally have in the region. Mm-hmm. In the case of Chermantia, you know, there are a few things, and especially when I was living in Argentina, I had the chance to, uh, to work, um, the, to be the chief winemaker for uh, Cheval des Andes, which is a joint venture between Terrazas de los Andes and Cheval Blanc. And, oh. uh, you know, one of the things that I, I loved was to have the chance to taste at a young age uh, some of the Cheval Blanc, and immediately you could recognize that balance between the expression of the terroir and the elegance, okay? Mm. And in, in our case, in the Tor region, you know, that's Charmantia, that's a, you know, the very old vines, the concentration that you have there. It's the balance between that concentration and the elegance. So yep. these are wines that, you know, first of all, are outstanding always. Right. And these are wines that actually... Are, have an incredible uh, aging potential. And, and finally, I would say, you know, I, I do believe that the best wines in the world seduce you through, your, through the aroma, through your nose, mm-hmm. but really give you pleasure in your palate. Oh, and, uh, and when you taste Termantia, it's like silk in your palate. It's a beautiful, beautiful sensation. Well, and you touched on earlier in the last segment about Floxera, and certainly those of us in the, uh, in the wine world, Floxera is a story that we know. It's a heartbreaking story of that bug, that louse that uh, almost destroyed all the vineyards of Europe. Now, the Termanthia, you know, you're, I guess you're top of the line, if we want to call it that, um, is actually ungrafted vines 
mm-hmm. that yes. were never affected by the phylloxera. And it says that they were planted between 1870 and 1890. Exactly. Is that right? The, yes, that's true. And the phylloxera arrived in the region in 1910. And because of the type of soils that we have in the region, which are sandy soils, and, uh, you know, it was also helpful that uh, we still have bush vines. So it's not like the vertical trellising system where you see all the vines aligned. In this case, the vines are on the, um, on the, on the floor. It's like it's really like a bush. And, uh, and the distance between vine, which is 10 feet times 10 feet, okay. and uh, the pH of the soil allowed us to keep those magnificent uh, old vines in perfect conditions. Great. And that's, you know, you don't find many places where you have ungrafted vines like that anymore. Um, the solution for a lot of this devastation was that because the bug actually came from the U.S., American rootstock in many cases has to be grafted onto the European vines to to really help the vines uh, protect themselves against this louse going forward. But so it's so unique and amazing that you have these ungrafted vines. I'm really I guess that's the wine geek in me coming out. It's really exciting. <laughs> so let's talk about, I'm married to a chef. I really believe that wine is meant to be part of the recipe of your meal, wine and food. You know, in Europe, you all get this way more than we do in America. But tell me a little bit about, real quickly, um, any of these wines and the Toro wines, what are the kinds of pairings that you think are best? You know, I've been trying, I've been lucky enough and uh I totally agree with what you just said. You know, I, most of the time I think of a wine and I think to have it with, with food. So I've been traveling all over the world, been tr- trying some different combinations, different inspired cuisines. But, to, for example, Termas is me, for me, goes perfect with a, with a beef carpaccio, for example. Um, you know, when I was in, uh, visiting um, uh, China not that long ago, I loved to have it like with a, with a spring roll, with, mm. uh, with lamb and uh, with, uh, with food inside, so with some, some vegetables and some meat inside. That was phenomenal. But here in the, in the United States, for example, I'd also like to have it uh, on top of the carpaccio, which you find in many restaurants as well, with some, um, some flatbread, for example, that has tomato base, which delivers a beautiful fruitiness and, and acidity. You know, if you like as well, I've been trying to do that to to have a good combination with with uh, crab cakes as well, which are <laughs> some of my favorites. So anyway, I, I've been trying some crazy stuff. I think that you you know the first thing that you have to learn about food pairing is to be audacious, okay? right? Because you don't experiment, uh-huh. exactly. experiment, exactly. And then afterwards, numantia. So as you were talking about, we're talking about a wine that has more concentration, more character. I would probably go to a lamb or to. Um, Suckling pig, suckling lamb, um, mm. I don't know, pecking duck goes quite well as well. So you have a, a wide range of, uh, of meat that has a little bit more of fat. So if you like steak and if you like steak with a little bit more of fat, goes fantastic as well. And then uh, finally, termanthia. Termanthia for me, I could have it by, my, by itself. So <laughs> I could have the wine by itself. Yesterday, actually, I'm, I'm, I had it with, um, with some um, dark chocolate with over Ooh. 70%. Just a dark chocolate goes phenomenal as well. But if you'd like to have with some meat that's a little bit stronger, also buco goes phenomenal. Ooh. Beef cheeks are phenomenal as well. One chale. And if you like some uh, buff bourguignon <laughs> as well, you can, you know, it's, it's, you can try. You can try. I'm actually starting to have some, uh, some hungry right now. I'm uh, uh, you know, talking yeah, you about better, food. Good. I think you're going to need to go eat. In Italy, they call wines like the Terramanthia meditation wines because you don't need food with them because they just engulf you in thoughts. So I think uh, for sure that is uh, similar with the Termanthia. Oh, yes, it is. You yes. just need a bottle of Termanthia, 
good company, uh, nice perfect. place, and. Oh, thank you so much for joining us on The Sipping Point. If you want to check out these wines, go to newmanthia.com. We're going to put a link on thewinecoach.com so folks can find you. And you definitely want to seek out these wines, whatever your price point, $20 on up. There's something here for everyone. And Emmanuel, thank you so much for sharing with us the, the wines of the Toro. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, you know, allow to discover, you know, that, uh, for example, the Wine Spectator has been talking about the Toro region, has been talking about Spain as one of those beautiful origins that will grow. So it's always a pleasure to have the chance to to talk a little bit about the, uh, not only the Spanish wines, but also about Toro and, of yes. course, this beautiful house, which is Numantia. Oh, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on The Sipping Boy. My pleasure. Cheers. You're listening to The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach. Well, do you know everything there is to know about Toro? Tinta, uh, the Toro, the grape, the wine. <laughs> it's delicious. And that's what I love about my New Year's resolution. Drink more Spanish wine. Right, and I've been doing it. Yeah, you've been. Lots of people have given up their resolutions, not me. I keep on plowing ahead. I gave up on giving revolu- <laughs> resolutions. I'm like, eh, I'm, Revolutions. I'm revolutions. A wine revolution. <laughs> Revelations. Well, you know, one of the things I love is getting out there and doing events. Yeah. I do tons of corporate events, client appreciation, team building. Festivals. But also my comedic wine tasting. And yeah. it's, what's great about it is the listeners that are in the audience they give me great wine questions that I get to use here on the show. Absolutely. So uh, if you're interested in having me, you can check all the information out at thewinecoach.com. Click on speaking. But we have a couple questions here. Uh, if you want to come out and wine and dine with me, I'll just give a little plug. On the 19th of June, okay. Friday the 19th, I'm going to be at Crow Vineyards in Kennedyville, Maryland. All That's right. over on the Eastern Shore near Chestertown, if you've heard of that town. Yeah. And what's great about Crow Farm is that it's a working farm, working winery, and they have overnight accommodations. Yeah. So come. Perfect. Get wind up with me and yeah. you can stay overnight. You don't have to drive. It's going to be a lot wind of Wind up and wound up. Go to thewinecoach.com for more information. But we have some questions from a few of my uh, recent corporate yeah. event clients. Lay them on me. This one is from uh, Kevin Curley. Okay. And he asks, at dinner, how long should you let a glass of red wine breathe? I believe in mouth to mouth on your wine immediately. Do not let, do not let it stop breathing. Uh, you know this really. I hate to say almost every wine question. Um, the right answer could be it depends. Right, but it does depend because some red wines don't need to breathe. They're not needing that extra oxygen to soften the tannins to bring out. Right. So you know if it's uh, Pinot Noir, it might not need very much time at all to breathe. Okay. You may be able to pour it, give it a couple swirls. It may taste delicious. But if it's more like our Toro here, our Termes we yes. had in the first segment, this is a pretty structured, firm, tannic wine. So I it's would... Hefty. Yeah, pour it, you know, maybe even 20, 30 minutes before you're going to drink it. If you're having a white wine for your appetizer, sparkling wine, sure. which I love to do, pour, have them pour it in your glasses. L- get, let it breathe a little bit or decant it. That'll speed up the process. Right. And, uh, you know, if you don't have that kind of time, then use your swirling skills. There you go. To integrate oxygen to the wine. Perfect. To soften up the tannins, to bring out those flavors. Um, so don't worry too much about it. There's always a way to hurry that along if you didn't have the four sight to do that. Yeah. Sometimes you don't know that the wine needs that breathing potential until you get the taste and you go, ooh, 
Wow. Yeah. This one's this wound a little, a little too little tight. Bit. Yeah. Good <laughs> well, question. I've Good got a question. question to piggyback onto that. Yeah. You mentioned you like to do sparkling wine for an appetizer. It, it just in my head, I feel like it would be just as good to do a sparkling wine as for dessert, or do you not do sparkling wine for dessert? Is that a faux pas? No, it, it's not a faux pas. There's so many different kinds of sparkling wine. Okay. Uh, that's why I love it. I mean, really, you could have every course of your meal with a sparkling wine. That sounds fun. And make it work. <laughs> yeah. But I would say usually the ones that work well for dessert are the fruitier sparkling wines and or the ones that are a little bit sweet. Okay. Like your demi-sec champagnes, like your moscatos, uh-huh. your brochettos which are the red sparkling wines we've had here before yeah, yeah. from Italy. So, yes, you can do sparkling all throughout. But okay. typically in the beginning, you're looking for your drier styles. Okay. Your dry champagnes, your cavas, even proseccos that are fruity but still dry. Because normally you're starting a meal with some sort of cheese or some yeah, sort or of... Yeah, a salad, a seafood, yeah. you know, appetizer. Something lighter. Right. And sparkling wine is very versatile. That's why it's a great place to start a meal or an event. Okay. You can't really go wrong. I love the bubble. I know, and it puts everybody in a good mood. It really does. I love it. I love it. All, all right, right, what else we got? Another question. This one's from Josh Walker, and he asks, is all Chablis suitable for seafood? The Chablis. Oh, the Chablis. The I Chablis. know. Chablis, you know, it got a bad name for a while because people had that... You know, jug Chablis that was very common right. here in the 70s and 80s in this country. But true French Chablis, which is a Chardonnay from Burgundy, is crisp and clean and has that acidity that makes it a great seafood wine. So, okay. yes, absolutely. Anything seafood, salad, anything you squeeze a lemon on would be great with a Chablis. Lobster. Lobster. But even with lobster, though, because you have that richness in the butter, yeah. you could go with a Chardonnay, a little bit more buttery and rich if you want. Okay. If you're into that. What style. about crab cakes? We're in, we're in Maryland here. Yeah, crab cakes. I love crab cakes with Viognier, which is a signature oh. white grape grown here in Maryland and Virginia. Okay. It's got lots of good fruit and typically, you know, a good acidity. Northern Rhone Valley of France also makes great Viognier. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah. All right. What else? So, weather. Yes. We are in the summer almost. Yeah. Not officially. I guess it's the 21st of June. But just about there. Feels yes, like it. It's great. So we're going to tell you in a moment some great places you can wine and dine outside. And we'll be right back on The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forrester, the wine coach. You've been listening to The Sipping Point, And the weather is beautiful. The way I like it. Yeah. Warm, okay? And if you're looking for a place to get out, have great food and wine in the beautiful surroundings of... Our city. Yeah. You might think about going to the Oregon Grill. Their patio is always open. Mm -hmm. They've got great wine lists, whether you're looking for affordable or fancy. Give them a call at 410-771-0505 to make a reservation. Parking is never an issue. They take care of you. They make you feel like a rock star. Yeah. Let's just say. What's a better thing to do on a Sunday afternoon? Sit outside and enjoy some delicious Sunday brunch. Right. Or play hooky from work and go have a long (laughs) lunch there. Anyway, next week, we'll be back to explore the recipe for a delicious life. Special thanks, as always, to Sheehy Lexus of Annapolis, Wine World, the Oregon Grill, and, of course, Hair the Dog, Wine and Spirits.